For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at a famous passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, and we're going to press on into chapter 6, verse 10. One of the things to remember is that whenever you're studying the Bible, those chapter divisions are synthetic. Really, um, sometimes the train of thought that the author is uh, taking you through can span chapters. So let's begin and look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 and 19. Paul says, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So there's a lot to unpack here. I think, first of all, we should try to wrap our mind around this word here, reconciled. It's not really a term that we use very often today, but it really describes two parties that are at odds with one another that come to a term of peace or that they uh, get to a place where they can agree to be on friendly terms with one another. And so, for example, if you have a divorced couple that decide that they want to get back together and remarry, you would call that a reconciliation of the marriage. And so likewise, the Bible teaches that we are, re- are uh, enemies of God, that we've done things that have alienated us from God because God is morally perfect and we are morally imperfect and God can't be in the presence of moral imperfection. So there's really a problem that we face in our relationship with God. But in his love, in his mercy, in his desire to pursue us, God says that he actually sent his son Jesus to come and die for us so that we could be reconciled back to him. Paul states this clearly in another passage, Romans 5, verse 9, 9 and 11, where he says, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we stood as enemies, and yet God, in his love, demonstrated it by sending his son Jesus. And so really, the message of Christianity isn't one of condemnation or judgment, It's one of peace and reconciliation. God wants to reconcile himself back to us. It's a great great message that the Bible gives. Well, he also says that in addition to reconciling himself to us, God has also given us what he calls the ministry of reconciliation. That word ministry just simply means service. So he's given us this task to reconcile the world back to himself. And you might wonder, what does that entail? Well, he says in verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So he's given us this word of reconciliation. That God wants 
us to actually broker peace with other people. That the peace we experience, he wants others to experience as well. So that's one thing that can be very confusing about the Christian life. A lot of times when you look at Christianity today, it seems like it's all about the Christian and what they can get, how we can get blessings in our lives. And God wants to impart blessing to us, but it's much more than that. It's not just about us. It's also about how we can impart that blessing to others. Well, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were actually making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So he introduces this concept of being an ambassador for Christ. You know, when you think of an ambassador, an ambassador is typically someone who is sent in an envoy to a foreign country. You know, whenever a king defeats an army or another king, what the king will do is they'll send a delegation to the other king to come up with terms of peace. And typically the ambassador is there to broker that peace, to come to terms of peace. Now, the ambassador isn't there to just speak on his own behalf. He's not allowed to just simply talk about his personal opinions as if they were the king's. He needs to speak in a way that is precise and communicates carefully what the king wants. And so the ambassador represents the king. Likewise, as followers of Christ, God wants us to be ambassadors to the world, that we represent Christ in what we do and what we say. Let's think about this a little more. What, what are ambassadors? What do they do? Uh, they aim to broker peace. Um, you know, when you think about an ambassador, usually they're there to try to be diplomatic. They're trying to win over the other king or the administration to come to a place where there's an agreement between two parties. And so likewise, you know, God wants us to be able to broker peace between him and people in the world who are still in rebellion against him. And so we have a a monumental task at hand to be able to make peace between God and other people. Not only that, they can experience eternal, eternal life and salvation as a result. And so that's why Paul says, as though God were actually making his appeal through us. You know, it's almost like he's, he's using us as his mouthpiece to speak to the world and communicate accurately not only what he wants for people, but also what he's like. Because I think a lot of people are confused about who God is. Secondly, the ambassador represents the king both in word and deed. Um, think about what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.11. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. You know, the things that you say, whether that's face-to-face or, you know, whether you say it online, I mean, that, that represents who God is. People oftentimes know what we're about. And so we may think that I'm just, you know, sounding off on a topic that's my personal opinion, and yet people inevitably associate that with Christianity. 
And so we need to be mindful of how our words impact people. Not only that, but our deeds as well. You know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I've, I've had this observation that the meanest, most aggressive, uh, nastiest people are the ones who have like a Jesus bumper sticker, right? <laughs> and you're just like, you serious? You're just, you know, weaving through traffic, going 100 miles an hour, you know, shaking your fist at people as you're passing them by. It's like, why, why are you acting like that with your bumper sticker? You know, I mean, there's a reason why I don't, wear, I don't have a bumper sticker that says, I love Jesus on my, on my car. It's because I know I would drag Jesus' reputation through the mud by the way I drive. <laughs> you know, the other thing is that an ambassador possesses knowledge about the people, customs, and culture to whom they've been sent. This is probably more compatible with a modern-day understanding of ambassadors. Usually an ambassador today will, will move to a foreign country and they'll learn about the people. They're students of the culture. They, they make sure that they understand the customs of the culture in which they're a part of so that when they communicate, they can do so in a way that is nuanced and unoffensive. And so likewise, you know, God calls on us to learn about our culture, to understand what makes people tick in our culture. You know, a lot of times when you think of Christians today, you think of them being as, you know, these irrelevant, sort of anti-cultural people. But the Bible actually paints a totally different picture of what we should be like. That we should be students of our culture. That we should understand it. And, and you know, it's not that we just participate in what our culture does so that we don't look like weirdos. But that we also understand the underlying worldview that undergirds the behavior and the, and the features that we see in culture today. Well, he goes on in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So, this phrase right here, where he says, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. It's a little odd because Paul's talking to believers. So he's not calling on them to receive salvation because they've done that already. So what is he talking about? To receive God's grace in vain. I think what he's talking about is that you may receive Christ, the gift of God, but you may just decide that you're going to throw that into your, your drawer, close it up, and uh, hope that it's going to provide you salvation one day. So you really don't do anything with it. So I think what he's talking about it when he says that you shouldn't receive God's grace in vain is that there's so much more to the Christian life than just receiving salvation, even though that's a lot. Super important. That God wants us to, get, to give us a full and rich life in this life in addition to eternal life. <clears throat> You know, one way to think of this is like, imagine you pay for a driver's ed, 
So, you know, that's expensive. It's a few hundred dollars. You have to do a bunch of in-car, so that's time-consuming. Let's say you practice and you finally get your license. You purchase a car that you've been working to save up for for, you know, several months or a year. And so you find, you're set. You've got your license. You've got your car. You're ready to go. And then you decide you're never going to drive. You're like, what was the point of that, right? You, you got your driver's license in vain, because you never did anything with it. Likewise, I think a lot of Christians do the same thing where, you know, they receive God's forgiveness and they never do anything with it. He says, by quoting Isaiah 48, in the day of salvation, I helped you. Now, a little bit of context here. In Isaiah 48, God is speaking to the servant of the Lord. And he's talking about the joy and excitement that the Israelites feel as they are being, or being taken out of exile in Babylon. And so Paul uses this verse and puts his own spin on it and says, today I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. In other words, if people were overjoyed about the salvation that they felt coming out of Babylon... Imagine how excited you should feel now that you have an opportunity to be a part of God's plan, to be a part of his kingdom. And so there's a sense of urgency, not only in receiving Christ, but also carrying out his mission on earth. You know, <clears throat> one way to think of this would be, Imagine you contracted a terminal illness of some kind, maybe like HIV AIDS, something real serious, right? And so um, you're contemplating how your life is going to change. And um, let's say, you know, as you're walking down the street, some complete stranger just walks up to you and hands you a few vials and says, um, this is going to take care of your problem, just walks away with you holding those vials in your hand. And so <clears throat> you take it home and you're skeptical. You're like, who was that person? What are these? Is this actually going to work? But out of desperation, you decide I'm going to inject myself with this. And so you do. At your, new, your next routine doctor's visit, your doctor you know, takes a blood test and finds that um, all signs of HIV AIDS is gone. And so you're just utterly speechless. What if you decided to walk out of the doctor's office, take the remaining vials, throw them in the dumpster, and never talk to anybody about it again? I mean, that wouldn't be morally irresponsible. That would be morally wrong, right? To just sit on this information to get rid of something that could cure millions of people who are dying. And in the same way, when, when God says, today, now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation, there's an urgency in the message that we have. Because, you know, we have a cure to something that infects 100% of people, death. And God says that we can play a major part in rescuing people who otherwise would be subject to eternal death, separation from God. And so we have an amazing mission to carry out. 
Well, <clears throat> Paul's going to talk about a number of qualities that an ambassador possesses that we want to look through. The first would be to not discredit ourselves as an ambassador. He says in verse 3, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. So <clears throat> he talks about how he's careful not to put any sort of stumbling block in front of the message of Christ. Now, one thing we should consider here is that the message of Christ serves as a natural uh, stumbling block. You know, think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. He says, to the Jews, the message of Christ is a stumbling block. To the, to the non-Jewish people, it's foolishness. And so even back during Paul's day, people were resistant to the message of Christ. They thought it was foolishness. They thought it was a stumbling block. And likewise, today, I think the offense of the crucifixion, it's still present. I think people are resistant to receiving Christ. Now, you might wonder to yourself, why would anybody be resistant to a gift? Right? I like, I like receiving gifts. Well, typically, when we think of a gift, we connote something that we want, not something we need. Right? It's like you show up to Christmas and somebody gets you this thing that you would never spend your own money on, but you wanted. You're like, that's great. Thank you for getting me this gift. Now think about when somebody gives you a handout, what kind of response you might have to that. It's a little bit different, isn't it? Because when you think of a handout, it puts the person who's giving something in a position of superiority over you. And so it grates against our pride to receive a handout because we feel like it's patronizing. That that person is elevating themselves and putting us in a position of submission to them. And that's the reason why I think the message of Christ can be so offensive to people. That it requires us swallowing our pride, humbling ourselves. Because God says, well, there's nothing that you can do to earn this. Doesn't matter what your status here is on earth, whether you're rich or popular or famous. I set my bar here. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. If you want to receive my grace, you're going to have to, to humble yourself. And so people don't like that. I don't like that. It also implies that we have to put ourselves in a position of humility toward God. Secondly, we can add additional stumbling blocks to our message through our behavior. That's really what Paul's aiming at. And he's saying that we need to minimize that as much as possible. The message of Christ already carries an offense. And so there's no need for us to, to multiply or add more stuff to that. Putting unnecessary stumbling blocks in people's way. You know, when you think about um, these stumbling blocks, uh, it kind of reminds me of the term ugly American. Have you ever heard of that? Ugly American was coined by uh, Eugene... Um, what's his name? I think it's Burdick uh, in, his, in his book called Ugly American. And it chronicles how after World War II, American ambassadors traveled to Southeast Asia and their ignorance of the culture and their arrogance really turned off a lot of Southeast Asian people and officials. 
and really uh, caused um, people to feel like, you know, America was not credible. And so today, when you think of the, the term is used largely of American travelers, you know, who travel abroad and uh, live, you know, act in a self-centered way that doesn't consider how they might be reflecting the country they came from. You know, this is the guy who shows up, you know, in some third world country and he's trying to communicate with the locals there. They obviously don't understand him. And instead of trying to slow down his speech or trying to learn phrases before he actually goes to that country, he just starts talking louder to the people, right? And they're just like, doesn't matter how loud you speak, I can't understand you. Doesn't make any sense. And so in a way, you know, you think about Christians and in the minds of most people in our world, we're ugly Christians. We're self-centered. We're obnoxious. We are xenophobic. And, um, you know, that's one thing that we have to try to dismantle that perception that people have about Christians. You know, when you think about the biggest obstacle fa uh, facing um, us when we try to bring people to Christ, what is it? It's Christians. You know, when you think about our history, which we all share, I know that we want to sort of separate ourselves from what Christians have done in the past, but, you know, 20 centuries of scandal of people uh, using their position of power in the church to take advantage of people. The fact that, you know, many Christians today are intolerant, they're nasty, they're mean-spirited. All of those things have done an incredible job to inoculate people from Christ. And, you know, one of the things that Paul was very sensitive of was trying to make sure that he didn't do things that discredited the message of Christ or his ministry. He was acutely aware of that. And so likewise, we need to regain that sensitivity as well. You know, <clears throat> people will continue to hold this view of Christians unless they meet believers who stand out as different in attractive ways. And I really think that this is going to have to take place on a grassroots level as people interact with us. You know, it starts at work or at school. What's your reputation at work like? You know, do people feel like you're, you're different, that you don't engage in the kind of back talk and gossip that everybody engages in at work? Do you actually work hard without complaining? Do you have a can-do attitude instead of a reluctance to do anything that your boss tells you to do? Are you helpful to your, your coworkers? You know, those are the qualities that we should be exhibiting out in the world. They're going to make us stand out. <clears throat> I know it's hard to believe, but a number of years ago, well, many years ago when I first came into the college group, one of the biggest problems that we faced was uh, just laziness. I heard one savage story where there were like five people from our church working at this one Panera, and within a span of like three months, all of them got fired for either being late or no-call, no-shows. Disgraceful. And, uh, you know, one of the real great things is that I think we have really turned things around. You know, uh, for example, I, me and my wife, we go to uh, 
North Star and get coffee every single week. We've been doing this for I don't know how many years. But um, <clears throat> I've noticed people who go to our, you know, college group, and, you know, they've got great attitudes. They work hard there. They seem like they're respected. They're friendly. And I'm like, that's what we need right there. People with a good attitude, people who are actually representing Christ in a positive way. What about your reputation as a neighbor? <clears throat> you know, how do your neighbors perceive you? Do they think you're really cool or do they feel like you're a blight on the community? You know, uh, I live in Clintonville, which is a little bit north of campus. We're actually in Clintonville. But um, <laughs> FYI. <clears throat> but, um, you know, people from, from our church have been living in Clintonville, I think, since the 70s. And, um, you know, a new crop of young couples, you know, start, have started moving into uh, Clintonville, neighbor there. And uh, one woman who attends our church, uh, she was telling me this story. She's one of my neighbors. She said, yeah, I was at a local coffee shop and I struck up this conversation with this woman I didn't know. And I told her, I was like, yeah, I just moved in <clears throat> the neighborhood. She's like, you just moved in here? She's like, yeah. She's like, okay. You know, the only people who live in Clintonville are Wiccans, <laughs> lesbians, or Xenos people? Which one are you? <laughs> I mean, it sort, of, it sort of took the breath out of her, and she was just like, she got a little defensive. She said, what makes you think I'm any of those things? And the woman's like, come on. She's like, all right, I'm part of Xenos, right? <laughs> so, I mean, the point is that people know who we are. They know that we're around. <clears throat> and so we need to think about how we can represent Christ in a positive way in our interaction with people in our neighborhood. You know, um, a few years ago when I moved into my house, um, I noticed that one of my neighbors left her lights on in her car. So I just, you know, went up to her house and just knocked on the door. And uh, I was like, hey, you know, you got your, your lights left on or whatever. And she's like, oh, thanks a lot. I really appreciate that. She's like, hey, you're, you go to Xenos, right? And I'm like, what? Why? How do these people know this? <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, I, I do go to Xenos. My name is Scott Risley. <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> but, you know, I, I try to go out of my way to really make sure to, you know, be nice to people because I, I know that. You know, people know who I am, they know what I'm about, and uh, I'm a representative of Christ. And, you know, we're starting to hear more and more positive stories about the kind of interactions people are having out in the community. I think it's a really good thing. You know, this, um, my friend, my next door neighbor, she said that she was uh, out at the park at Whetstone, and um, she met this woman, and she said, the woman asked her, she said, so what, what you know, school do you send your kids to? And she's like, oh, Calumet Christian School. She's like, oh, you're one of those Xenos moms, right? And um, my friend was like, yeah. She's like, well, I'll tell you what, there's just something about Xenos moms that I've interacted with that's just really unusual. It seems like you guys really know how to build community in a way that's really different. 
She's like, I've interacted with two women who have little kids that send their kids to Calumet, and they're, they're super friendly. They're always inviting me over to their house, and I can say that they're truly my friends. And so, you know, those are the kind of stories we want to hear. And I think, you know, down on campus, we have a ways to go. I think we, I think we need to do a little bit more work. You know, you drive past one of our ministry houses, and it looks like you know, a wild meadow is growing up in their front yard, or there's just trash strewn everywhere. You know, I I think we need to be conscious of how people view us. They know who we are. They know what we're about. And so we need to make sure to have a positive impact on people instead of a negative one. The second thing that really, I think, identifies someone as a ambassador for Christ is their radical commitment. Paul says in verse 4 and 5, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, troubles, hardship, distress, and beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. I mean, Paul, as he was setting out to share the message of Christ with the world, encountered incredible hardship and, and persecution. And so, you know, Paul wasn't advocating for an aesthetic or, you know, an ascetic way of life where you just, you just uh, try to, you know, put yourself in situations where you suffer. He wasn't a masochist. Instead, what Paul was trying to point out here is that an index of our spirituality is our commitment. And that really makes an impact on the people who are watching. When they see that we're able to endure suffering and do so with a quiet sense of confidence that God is going to work despite how bad the situation is. You know, by contrast, lukewarm devotion suggests our faith really isn't that important. You know, a lot of people, when they think of Christians, you know, they think of people who live their lives just like everybody else, and yet they're a Christian in name only. There's really nothing to identify them as any different from anyone else except for the fact that they're maybe self-righteous and hypocritical. You know, I think God uh, wants us to, to see that we can't expect others to take Jesus seriously unless we take him seriously enough to suffer in his service. That as we move toward people and experience suffering as a result of Christ. That people are going to see that and they're going to see that there's something different about us. Not in a negative way, but in a way that really stands in stark contrast to the rest of the world. You know, you think about our world today. Most people that you encounter, they have really no ability to deal with the negative emotions they feel when they face bad circumstances. They panic. And yet, you know, God gives us incredible purpose in our suffering. He gives meaning to the negative consequences or or circumstances that we face in life. And so we have really an incredible opportunity to demonstrate something different as a result of the suffering we we have to undergo. 
Look at what Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 27 through 35. He says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me, he can't be my disciple. Now, back in Jesus' day, a cross was not, you know, a Christian symbol. It was a symbol of torture and death. So really what he was saying here is that unless you are willing to suffer for my sake, you cannot be my disciple. He goes on to say, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if, if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him and say, this fellow began a building and he wasn't able, able to even finish it. Or suppose a king is about to go out to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any, any one of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, if you really want to follow Jesus radically, then you need to count the cost. You know, and especially now when we're living in a culture that is becoming more and more opposed to Christian values and the Christian worldview, there's going to be a cost, even in receiving Christ. People are going to have to make mental calculations. Is it worth it? Because after all, that's how most people throughout the world make decisions to receive Christ. He ends by saying, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. You know, imagine you go to the store. You get a box of kosher salt. Coarse, right? Good stuff. <laughs> so you come home. You season this, you know, um, expensive cut of steak that you have. Season it well. And then, uh, you know, you cook it up. So you sit down. You take a bite into your steak, and guess what? It doesn't taste like anything. You can't taste the salt at all. That would be super frustrating, wouldn't it? I mean, you, you might even freak out on the salt. I mean, you'd be like, you had one job to do. You're supposed to be salty. You're completely worthless. And then you realize your roommate's been standing there the entire time watching you say this. You're just like, dang. Now, you think about salt. What, what does salt do? First of all, salt creates thirst, right? But it also accentuates the flavor of food. And so likewise, you know, what we're supposed to do in the world is we're supposed to create spiritual hunger because of our way of life. People notice us and see that there's something different. It's appealing. It's attractive. And it accentuates, hopefully, who Christ is. Now, <clears throat> what does it mean to be salty? Well, he says in verse 27 and 33, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And so it's our willingness to go into suffering for the sake of Christ. Or a willingness to endure suffering with a good attitude, trusting that God will work. In addition to that, it's a willingness to give everything to Christ. He says in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything, he cannot be my disciple. And so those are attractive qualities. You know, in, in our world today, 
People rally themselves around a cause, but very few are willing to sacrifice to an extent that it will actually cost them something. And when people see that, it's going to make a real impression. Douglas Hyde, who is this uh, former Communist Party leader, became a Christian and wrote this book called Dedication and Leadership, which highlights how if Christians had the same dedication as some of his comrades in the Communist Party, Christianity would actually have a greater influence in the world. He says, such sacrifices, whether at the level of leaders or of rank and file, are impressive. People of every continent have responded to this example of idealism expressing itself in terms of sacrifice. Indeed, the more materialistic our society becomes, the more the, de- the dedicated man stands out by way of contrast. The dedicated man makes his own appeal by virtue of the fact that he is dedicated. In other words, when people see somebody who has really given themselves over completely to a cause, there's something attractive about that. Here are a few questions to sort of see whether or not you are um, really showing or exhibiting the kind of commitment that Christ is calling for. When was the last time your commitment to Christ exacted a cost in one of your relationships? What about this? When was the last time your commitment to Christ motivated you to make a significant sacrifice of your comfort and resources? When was the last time someone accused you of taking your commitment to Christ too seriously? I mean, if you answered no to all those questions, maybe you've gone underground. Maybe you're ashamed of what God has given to you. And you know, the thing is, you can hide all you want, but people are going to figure it out that you're a Christian. And I think the best position to take is one of strength and being bold, unashamed of who you are, that you are a follower of Christ. Also, Paul talks about attractive spiritual qualities. He says in uh, verses 6 and 7, Rather, as servants of Christ, we commend ourselves in every way in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. So he talks first of all about purity, and he's probably talking specifically about sexual purity here. So he's talking about living in a way that is is, uh, morally different from the rest of our world. Secondly, he talks about understanding that as Christians, we should be able to answer people's questions, that we're knowledgeable about the Bible, You know, imagine if you talk to an ambassador and you ask them about some sort of foreign policy and they're like, I don't know, sorry, maybe you can Google it. (laughs) You'd be like, you're a terrible ambassador, right? I mean, you're here for one job and that's to represent your country and you don't even understand their policy on a certain matter. And so likewise, I think as believers in Christ, you know, God wants us to learn and deepen in our understanding, not only because it brings about spiritual growth in us, but also so that we can answer people's questions. You know, people have 
lots of different misconceptions about Christianity. And we have to be able to answer that. That's why, you know, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Also, he talks about being patient and kind, which really uh, amounts to sincere love. So we're not supposed to be self-centered. We're supposed to be other-centered. People should notice that we take an interest in people's lives. I know that this is probably so ingrained in what we do in our community, but it's really a shock to new people when we sit down and we ask them questions about their life. Have you ever noticed when you're in a conversation with people, you're asking them a bunch of questions? How many questions do they typically ask you? Not that many, right? A lot, a lot of conversations are like that. It's just like, I'm, I'm trying to find a way to say what I want to say to you. But how many people do you actually encounter who takes a deep interest in your life? Most people in the world are struck by that. And so taking an interest in people's lives, showing them love, serving them, are qualities that we should have. And we shouldn't miss this part, in the Holy Spirit and the power of God. You know, we can't just work really hard to gain these qualities. This is something that God does in us through the Holy Spirit and through the power of God. We have a part in it. You know, a lot of times we think that spiritual growth is just sort of like, I'm just going to draw me a little, you know, grace bath. And I'm just going to soak in it and, you know, grow spiritually. It's not the way it works. You know, God wants us to cooperate in this process. Think about what he says in, in Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. He says that, you know, he wants us to work out what God has put in us, in us, our salvation. For God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this isn't a passive process. It's something that we need to do in concert with God, but we can't do it without him. Finally, he gives us some paradoxical results in verses 8 through 10. He says, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, Known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. He gives eight paradoxical statements. And although they're paradoxical, that doesn't mean they're irrational. You know, when people look at the outcome of an ambassador for Christ's life, Often the results don't look that good from a certain point of view. If you value what the world values, you look at what a believer in Christ is doing and you think, why would I ever want to live like that? And yet when you possess the spiritual values of God's kingdom, what we experience is true fulfillment and blessing. I tried to paraphrase these in, in a few statements. Some people will slander you, but you will have the peace and confidence of knowing you are faithful to Christ. Some people will think you're wasting your life, but you will feel increasingly privileged in your role as an ambassador. Sometimes you'll experience intense pain in Christ's service, 
But the satisfaction of experiencing God's comfort will more than make up for it. You will not only have worldly, you won't have worldly success and acclaim, but you will have God's faithful provision and the ability to enrich spiritually others. And so, even though from the outside looking in, we're a complete mess. We're wasting our time. And yet from our perspective, we see that God is giving us an opportunity to do something great for him. Let's draw a few points of application. I think for those of us who have already met Christ, don't receive the grace of God in vain. God has a rich life to give you, one filled with meaning and purpose. You look around our world today, our culture, and people are hopeless. They're longing for meaning. And God says, this isn't something that we need to manufacture for ourselves. He can give us this meaning by carrying out his mission. And so if you're here and, and you're that kind of Christian who has received Christ and has sort of thrown, you know, that salvation in the drawer as sort of like, you know, fire insurance. The Christian life offers a lot more than that. And you can embark in actually serving him today. For those of you who may not know Christ personally, who are still at odds with him, God wants you to know that he wants to broker a peace deal with you. That it's time to set down your arms and to come to the table and to receive the forgiveness that he offers so that you can be reconciled back to him. God wants that more than anything. Think about what he says in, in chapter 5, verse 20, which we looked at. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God's making an appeal through his word to you to finally come into a relationship with him. And there's a sense of urgency to this as well. Paul says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. You know, we may have been putting off this decision for a while, but God says, look, time is running out. Forge this relationship with me now. All right, why don't we just uh, spend some time in prayer and then we can hang out. Thanks again for the privilege of being able to represent you. I definitely feel like <clears throat> I haven't been the perfect ambassador as I've tried to follow you, but um, I know looking back on the 20 years that I've been following you, I don't regret ever signing up to be your ambassador. You've given me incredible blessings, and um, I know that <clears throat> when I look at my life, I really have no regrets. I pray, Lord, for those of us who... Um, are thinking about embarking upon this to serve you in this way. Pray that you would uh, give them a vision for becoming an ambassador um, within their specific context. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.